Welcome to another episode of the Coco Podcast, a place where we amplify voices in the chocolate and cocoa industry in search for true sustainability. I am your host, Emma Rose. And I'm your co-host, Ines Kervarek. <laughs> and today we're going to dive into the world of chocolate with a very special guest. Dr. Christy Leslie uh, is a scholar of cocoa and chocolate uh, and a co-founder of the Cocoa Partnership Institute of Ghana. Uh, since 2004, her work has investigated the politics, economics, and cultures in the, uh, of these industries, focusing on West African politics, uh, political economy, and agriculture, uh, specialty cocoa trades, and the complex meanings produced and consumed through chocolates, marketing, and advertising. Uh, her book, Coco, explores cocoa geopolitics and personal politics. Uh, she is the author of the series I'm a Cocoa Farmer, published by Confectionery News, uh, which offers in-depth profiles of people who farm cocoa for a living in Africa. Well, welcome, Christy. Thank yes, you. Welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be talking to both of you today. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you very much. Yeah. Great to have you here. Um, so yeah, might as, might as well just get started with how did you uh, make chocolate such a central part of your life? Oh gosh. Well, chocolate is uh, chocolate itself. The, the the food, you know, has always been a part of my life since my my memories began. Really, um, as a child, I I really loved chocolate more than I loved anything else, and I would go to great lengths to eat as much chocolate as I could. So, on a personal level, chocolate is like literally one of my earliest memories is is of loving chocolate. So that's always been a part of me. But it wasn't until I was um, in my PhD program, and I was actually already a few years into my PhD program, um, where I had been studying the water industry um, in West Africa. Mm. And I was planning to go and, and get started on my field work in Senegal, looking at the privatization of water in Senegal when I, when I had an opportunity to make a switch to chocolate. And so really, um, and obviously it was, it was like no decision at all to change from studying water to studying chocolate. I'd never conceived of studying chocolate academically. This was like early, early days in food studies, you know? So food, food studies wasn't something I was aware of as an academic. And so I hadn't really thought about studying chocolate. It would have almost sounded ridiculous, you know, when I was applying to my PhD program to study chocolate. So the opportunity came my way. And, and then really, to be honest, like professionally, it has been like just never ending in its interest to me. Like I never get bored. I never lack for a new path. Um, the field work is constantly interesting to me. And I just feel like even with as much as I've done, I've barely scratched the surface, you know? And, and so there is no, for me, there's no reason to stop. <laughs> so there, there's plenty to be learned. And um, I'm just grateful to be able to make some field-based contributions. That's fascinating. Thanks. Um, and hmm, let's see, the chocolate industry is very, very complex. And you've, you know, 
researched many different aspects. If you were to kind of wrap it up mm. into like a few short sentences, how would you? Or maybe not, maybe a few paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try for sentences because that's a great, that's a great thing. And you know, when I was when I was I was a professor for most of my career at the at the University of Washington in mm. Seattle and, and and Bothell. And a lot of my exams, I loved to have my students write about a complex thing in one sentence. And so this is actually brings me right back to, I feel like I'm taking one of my own exams. So <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how well I would do. I, I would say that um, the value chain, right? The, the distance between cocoa and chocolate normally is very long. Right, and not just long geographically, but economically and culturally. There's a lot of distance between cocoa and chocolate. And so to sum it up, I would say the most important thing that we can do, no matter where we are along that value chain, whether we're closer to the chocolate end or closer to the cocoa end or somewhere in between, is to like commit to learning as much as we can about the other parts of the value chain, right? And so I always really encourage my readers in my writing, um, people I'm speaking to at events, used to be my students as well in classes, to make um, a real effort to take the perspective of somebody else that does something different than they do in cocoa or chocolate. So if you're a consumer, try to take the perspective of a farmer. If you run a big company, try to take the perspective of someone who runs a small company, you know, whatever it is, try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's one of the best ways I think we can to, to learn more about cocoa and chocolate. Um, I want to bounce back on, on this by, yeah, pointing out that as complex as the industry is, we um, have to realize that it's very heterogeneous depending on where you are doing your work so yeah. um, there is no one fits all answer to anything it's always interesting to explore what other people are doing and see if it works or not and then find a positive deviance and then try to apply it in uh, in other other areas of the industry yeah a hundred percent i mean what what makes sense to one company or to one person or to one farmer or something might not work for someone else, right? There's, there is no one right answer and there is no one story that we can tell about how to do things in the best possible way, whether that means, you know, working for social justice or working for gender justice or, or, or even the, the luxuriousness of chocolate itself to increase our, our appreciation of it. There's always multiple ways that we can go about doing that, always. It's a great point. I have a question about how you do your research. So you go on the field and then approach people. How do you get in touch with them, first of all? How do you network there? And then how do you bond with them so that you know they will be truthful in their answers with you and really be able to allow you to dig deeper and see what they need, I guess. Thank you for that question. You know, and my 
my answer to that has changed somewhat um, in recent years, but to start out, I will say that you, you really can't ever just meet a farmer, you know? So most of my, my field research is with farmers. And, um, you know, to, to start out, I'll say, maybe this is different in other places, I don't know, but in, in Africa, for sure, you, you, you can't just go up to a farmer and, and begin a conversation, you know? Like farmers are, are human beings, you know? They have lives and families and work days and, and homes and stuff. And so really the way that I get in touch with farmers um, initially has always been through an organization or a company. And so typically in my case, it's a, it's a company. Um, I would, in my earliest days as a researcher, got to know some of the, the managers of two different licensed buying companies in, in Ghana um, that are the ones who actually send representatives to buy the cocoa beans from the farmers. And so the licensed buying companies here, they, they do the actual trade with the farmers. And so they have relationships with farmers. So I made my research proposal, you know, to two of these companies and um, they wanted to get to know me a little bit and my work and establish some trust with me. Once we had that established, then they would bring me into the field and introduce me to farmers myself. And so that is pretty much the way that I do it. And that stayed consistent um, over the years. My first introduction is always through a company or, or a cooperative or an organization where I will approach someone at the management level, get to know them a little bit, answer any questions they have about my, my research purpose, and then I get my introductions to cocoa farmers themselves. Nowadays, because I, I live in Ghana um, and I, I, I live in the capital city, Accra, so it's, I don't live in a rural area, but I am able to go into rural areas whenever I want to. So now that I've gotten to know some farmers, I have the opportunity to contact them directly, you know, and I might just message uh, someone I know who farms cocoa and say, hey, I, you know, what do you have going on this week? You know, can, do you want to meet up and talk about this or that? Or maybe we have some project we're working on and then I'll go do that. So my individual relationships with farmers have been really helped by the fact that I, I live here and it's very easy for me to, to go into um, the rural areas. So it's, it's um, I wouldn't say it's an easy task to begin with, but once you get to know people, the way is paved. Um, are the farmers in contact with each other or are they usually more isolated? Oh, no, 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 no. They are absolutely in contact with each other. That's a great question because I, and, and from your question, I'm, I'm reminded that sometimes there is this imagination that cocoa farmers are kind of stuck out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and they have no contact with the outside world. <laughs> and that's like not at all true in my experience, but I think it's, it's very easy to imagine that they might be because of the stories we hear about farmers, you know, um, that they're, they're kind of cut off from globalization or they're, they're exploited by, by traders because they don't know anything. They live in the forest or something. In my experience, that's, that's not at all the case. Some farmers live in more remote areas than others. That's just a fact. Um, there are farmers that it's taken me a couple of days to get there from Accra, 
you know, and that's because they're in a pretty remote region, maybe not very well served by regular transportation. There's some farmers that live right outside the capital, you know, so they're coming here, they're, they're, or they're coming into a big city. Um, every farmer has relationships with other farmers. How many relationships and how close they are really depends on what their village is like. And so some villages are really clustered. Like if there's, um, for example, like a, a main road or a paved road running through a village or nearby, the houses tend to be clustered around it so that you, because that's your access, right? So people have built houses near roads or near streams. If there's a water source that the village might be a little more concentrated. And then you have farmers who all see each other all the time regularly. Some are a little more spread out, but you can't really grow stuff without talking to your neighbors. You know, people talk to each other, they collaborate on things. Um, Cocoa is super collaborative in many ways. Neighbors come together to help each other with certain steps. Um, they share information, they, they, they share strategy, they talk about the weather, they talk about price. So they tend to be pretty communicative and, and pretty um, aware of what's going on, at least in their community, if not at the national level. Okay. So I learned that um, farmers in Ghana were mostly grouped in co-ops and that's where the cocoa then goes out to the world right mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a few steps in between but okay <laughs> yeah there, there, there's a little it's, it's a little bit more organized here in Ghana but go, go on finish your question and then we'll, we'll um yeah no I just wanted to know how much they are they know about all of the different variables that affect their beans flavor and the future chocolate, I guess. So like all of the fermentation, from growing the cocoa to fermentation and drying. In Ghana, they know a lot. Um, in Ghana, the cocoa farmers have been organized, you know, cocoa has been in this country for like 140 years or something, you know, it's like farmers have pretty much always been organized. And maybe the way that organization looks, it might've changed a little bit, but it's, it, you know, and you use the word cooperative. There have always been cooperatives here. At certain periods of history, those cooperatives have functioned more cooperatively or less cooperatively, but there's always been a certain level of organization amongst cocoa farmers. And like at certain times in, in Ghana's history, for sure, the, the level of organization has been very high and sometimes less so. Just depends on the, the politics and the economics of the time period. So I would say now, um, yes, most farmers are organized into cooperatives or some kind of producer organization. Um, even before there was, you know, even or even if farmers aren't organized as a co-op, co they make selling decisions together. And so in Ghana, the official estimate is like 800,000 farmers, right? It's not possible for any company to have relationships with thousands and thousands of farmers, right? You know, so the way it works is that 
farmers in a village or even a few villages will come together and decide, okay, all right, if there's only one company buying cocoa from them, they don't have a choice. But if there's a few different companies operating in their area, and there usually are, there's usually a choice of who you get to sell to, then the farmers will decide together, okay, we're gonna sell to this company. And so they're already organized at that level. Um, companies that you sell to, your actual beans, who pay you for them, tend to provide some help to farmers. Um, and then of course, there's also Ghana Cocoa Board, which is the regulatory body. It's a government agency that's tasked with regulating cocoa in Ghana. And of all of the big cocoa growing countries in the world, Ghana Cocoa Board is, um, is, does, let's say the best job at regulating the industry. And part of that means training farmers on best practices. It means um, helping farmers to understand what has to happen between literally planting the tree and selling the beans to make the cocoa be its best quality. So Ghana has the highest quality of all the bulk beans that are traded in the world. Um, bulk meaning the conventional cocoa that goes into the major brands and the confectionery industry globally. So everything from like ice creams and um, you know cakes and whatever, all that stuff, right? So Ghana has the highest quality. Why? Because everyone's done a really good job at like explaining what are the best practices. Now, I'm not saying that every single farmer in Ghana does all of the things perfectly. That's far from the case, right? But you tend to see a really high level of knowledge and um, also a, a really high commitment level to doing the best that a farmer can. And the reason for that in my experience is that people have a lot of pride in what they do. Like if you go into the bush here, you will hear someone say Ghana is cocoa and cocoa is Ghana, right? That is a saying that's really common. And what does it mean? It means like, this is our, this cocoa built this country, you know? And, and um, this country built cocoa, right? And so you have, really people who are very aware of the need to do cocoa well and who do their best at it. So in my experience, people, people try their best and they, they have a high level of knowledge. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. So what would be the farmer's relationship to the tree itself, I would say, because we hear a lot about how Cocoa is not the best sustainable or probably um, money-making crop. So they're not interested in changing crops, are they? And how do they react to prolific hybrids that may be introduced to them? There are farmers who would want to change. And when they want to change to another crop besides cocoa, the reason is because the cocoa is not working for them. And so there are, there are always diseases, right? And so if the farmer lives in an area where disease or drought or some unknown thing, you know, farmers don't always exactly know what might make their cocoa not thrive. Um, 
if, if a farmer is in a place where their cocoa is suffering, they might say, I'd like to grow something else. And I know farmers who live in parts, especially like the central region or Western region in Ghana, where there's a lot of cocoa diseases and they are struggling enough that they are trying, you know, they'd like to switch to some other crop. Um, in my experience, and again, it totally depends on like where you do your field work and which farmers you know, but in my experience, that's not very common. Um, it's much more common for farmers to want to stick with cocoa if they have it or plant it if they don't have it. So cocoa is, um, you're absolutely right in that farmers, the people doing the everyday work of cocoa farming don't often make a lot of money that we can say for sure, but it's still the best option among many options if you're going to have an agricultural livelihood. There's not much industry here. Like there's, there, Ghana's not like super industrialized. So options for work can be really limited. And if you've got a cocoa farm, then you have something durable. You, 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 you've got something that's going to last you hopefully a long time. And something you can pass on to your children. So having cocoa is very highly valued. You know, it's, it's wealth. It's something that people strive to do is work in cocoa. Um, once you're established as a cocoa farmer, you, you know, farmers are, express a lot of satisfaction with that. They're, they're happy for it. So Yes, they don't necessarily make a lot of money, but in the context that we're in here, it's really a good thing to be doing. So mm -hmm. it's both sides of the story are true. Are most cocoa farmers poor? Yes. Are they also really glad to be farming cocoa? Yes, you know, because what are the alternatives? So it's, it's sort of multiple takes on the situation that don't always get discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, you so earlier you mentioned that they were pretty organized and they do have some kind of power in their trading the beans in the way they trade the beans. Um, how can we empower them more, give them more voice? I would say. I don't think it's for people outside to necessarily give farmers a voice, right? Like I, I think that. Um, And I, and I say that as someone who writes about farmers and, and actually tries to share their stories. Um, so maybe in a way that's like, I don't know, that sounds a little bit contradictory because my, my whole professional work is trying to bring farmers' voices, you know, into more, you know, to wider audiences. But I think that farmers are very capable of um, speaking for themselves, you know, and, and if you ask, Okay, so many, many, many times over the years, I've asked farmers this exact question, like who has power in this industry? And I'm gonna just, I haven't analyzed this, so I'm making a very rough guess here, like just thinking anecdotally in my head. I would say about at least 25% of the time, the farmer will answer, the farmers have the most power, you know? And so, okay, 25% may be kind of low, but, Some farmers really do say, 
I have the most power because I'm the one growing the cocoa. And if I don't grow cocoa, then the rest of this industry has nothing, right? And so there is awareness that farmers are the source of everything. Even those same people, however, who say I have the power in the industry, those same people might even say, I still wanna be respected, right? And I think farmers that I have talked to in Ghana over these many years, are really aware that the rest of the industry does not respect them and and that they are seen as kind of um, less important than they are. And so, you know, empowering farmers, that's a tricky one because I, I don't know how you empower from outside, but respecting farmers, we can all do that, right? We can all do it. and. For me, how do you respect a farmer is I ask them <laughs> to tell me their stories and I believe them, you know, and, and, I, and I, I pay them the respect of believing their truth, right? Even if that truth sounds different to what I've learned somewhere else, or even if that truth is, seems to be in conflict with someone else, you know, something else that I've learned, um, for me, respecting them means believing them and listening to them. And when you move up the supply chain just a little bit, you get um, cocoa traders, right? Is that the next step? Like once the cocoa mm -hmm. gets... And how, because, you know, that is a, a thing that I've heard is that farmers really don't have a say in the price of the cocoa and it's the step above that does. So how does... How does that system work? In Ghana, it works differently than in Ivory Coast. So um, okay. in Ghana, the price is set by Ghana Cocoa Board and that is the, that's the price. And you, as, a, as a licensed buyer, you have to pay that price. Having said that, there is always what we call weighing corruption, which is um, at the moment of sale, the farmer may not get the full weight of their beans. And there's lots of reasons for that. Like, People who buy cocoa range, they're human beings, right? So like some are in a good position themselves. They're doing well. They have a good scale. They have, um, you know, they belong to maybe a strong producer organization or a cooperative or something. They don't cheat the farmers as much. Other people are not so reliable, right? And may pay the farmer for, they'll still pay the price but they pay for less cocoa than they're actually getting. Hmm. And we call that weighing corruption. The word corruption is again, like um, sometimes I would say that it applies. And sometimes I would say it's almost more like a tax. Um, and you will hear people in the industry describe it sometimes as a tax. So if the buyer or the buying organization takes two kilograms or even the, the warehouse where the cocoa was stored might take two kilograms of cocoa or something like that from a bag. Um, this like sort of tax is trying to pay everybody else that work. You know? and, and, and I think one of the, the things that I really need to emphasize is that I'm not sure what sort of happens in people's minds when they think about um, that moment when cocoa farmers sell, like the stories I read suggests to me that there's this idea that there's like 
a farmer who's alone, you know, and like <laughs> there's a sort of evil trader who comes in and like exploits them and pays them like a penny, you know, and then like they're alone in the woods or something, you know, that's not the way it happens. Like there's many people around, you know, there's lots of people and like the people who drive the trucks are there. There's lots of people from the buying organization who are milling around. There's neighbors, there's spouses, like there's children and aunts and all. I mean, everyone is around. So it's not like people are sort of, it's not like the poor helpless farmer going up against his big machine. And there's so many people required to move cocoa from a farm to ultimately a port or a factory that this sort of tax that happens is supporting all those people. So it's not like, is the farmer losing out in a way? Yes. I believe, however, that when this happens, more often than people being bad, it's like the system is not like, um, like I just paid my, I just didn't, I just filed my taxes for the US, right? Like I pay my taxes in America. And I filled all these forms and I, you know, I pay my social security and I pay my Medicare, you know, like taxes and I pay all these things. And I have faith that the system is set up to do something for everybody, like build roads or, you know, pay retirement benefits or make sure people have medical care or whatever. That is not the way it works here. <laughs> you know, and so like, how do you make sure that people are taken care of when the system isn't formal you tax the cocoa hmm. so that happens right it happens and and it happens pretty regularly and everyone kind of knows it and people are more or less upset about it depending on their personal circumstances but it's like not caused by people being bad usually you know it's 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 not caused by um like evil, it's caused by the system, you know, and, and the, the way the system is set up. So farmers may be relatively less powerful in some scenarios. Sometimes they may have more power. Would you say that the farmers and the people along the supply chain, uh, supply chain make enough money? No, definitely not. And this is why you see this kind of tax happening. Volumes matter. So if you are someone who's in charge of buying cocoa or warehousing cocoa or doing something between farm and port, and you've got a lot of volume coming through, that's a possible way to get more money, right? If you don't have a lot of volumes, then you're not doing well. But overall, um, you don't become wealthy as a nation by trading agricultural commodities, not in our world. You know, if we can imagine another world where we valued things properly, what is more important than the food that we eat and the, the clothes that we wear and, you know, the, the things we build our shelter from. So in another world, you know, we would value these things in a correct way. We don't do that. So, you know, the, the price of cocoa and not just like the price that the farmer gets, but the whole price mm -hmm. is low. 
and that price, like I, like I, like I said before, it doesn't just have to sustain a farmer. It has to sustain the nation of Ghana, right? Like, or Ivory Coast or whatever, right? It's like the cocoa is what's building roads and hospitals and, you know, making sure the ports work and like all the things that we need as a people to, to live in a comfortable way. Um, to making sure industry operates, utilities, lights, I mean, everything. Right. If you're trying to do all of that on a cheap agricultural good, you don't get very far. And so everyone along the value chain suffers from that because there's not too many moments where you can really get comfortable from your income from cocoa no matter who you are. If, you know, the global like cocoa prices or maybe the ones in Ghana decided by the board were to um, rise, you know, I don't know how significantly it would have to rise, but would, the, would it be the people in the supply chain that would benefit? Some, many would, many would benefit. I mean, there's, any, any industry has its, problems you know from the top to the bottom you know so i can't say that if we raise the price of cocoa say like overnight if the industry magically decided to double or triple the cocoa price would all of that go back to the farmers no you know some of it legitimately right like legitimately many other people have to make a living from cocoa right whether they're transporting it whether they're doing the administration of it, you know, whether they're um, working at the port, you know, whatever it is, lots of other people. So the, the idea that 100% of the, the value of cocoa can be passed on to a farmer is to me, not a, a sound economic way of thinking, you know, because it's, it's not like the cocoa just magically jumps, you know, from the farm right. to the factory, it's got to get there some way. Would there be issues with illegitimate use of those funds? no doubt that's the way the world works you know that's the way industry works everywhere and it's not exclusive to coco um it's not exclusive to any one country you know this you know the the issue of wealth disparity you know is is not going to be solved just by raising the price of cocoa and so um that's something that i think it's not like i'm going to be defeatist and say okay let's just accept it but it's a reality that we have to at least acknowledge, you know, um, while we're in the discussion of, of price, for sure. Right. Hmm. Um, I have a question about, so yes, we need money, but they probably also need more or better infrastructure, like roads and stuff like this. Who is in charge of that? A great question. In any country, you'd expect the government to be in charge of that. And, and even here in Ghana, in Ivory Coast, in Nigeria, in Cameroon, you know, in all the big cocoa producing countries in Africa, the government has first and foremost, the responsibility for infrastructure. You know, that's what governments do is their job is to look after the population. The population needs roads, they need hospitals, they need electricity, they need clean water. Um, this is our government responsibility. The reality is that in the case of let Ghana, where I live, and I'm sure other countries in Africa that where I haven't studied it as carefully, um, 
the reality is that private sector sometimes does step in and not always for the reasons that we think. Um, there's, if an industry needs to move something out of the country to generate its revenue, then they will make sure there is a way to do that. Um, so in Ghana, what's happened uh, historically is like the logging industry, you know, which takes out the, the trees, the for, for the timber trees, that industry is not so much, okay, it still exists in, in Ghana for sure, but it's much less now because a lot of the big trees are, are gone. Um, but when it was very strong and doing a lot of um, timber harvesting, the timber industry would tend to go in first. Um, you cannot, like trees grow in forests and, and there's no roads, you know, so the timber industry would somehow create a road, not a, maybe a great road, but a road, um, or pre, uh, repair roads that were not good. And then what you would often see is that cocoa would follow, right? And so a timber industry would, person would come in and sort of create a road or improve a road. And then people would move in and establish cocoa farms kind of behind timber. So that's just one example, right, of like how private sector can sometimes also provide these things and not necessarily for what we'd consider like, it's not like a social justice project, you know, for the timber industry to go in and create a road. It's necessary for their own industry, but primarily, it is the responsibility of the government and, and that's where really the money should go. Farmers talk about this quite freely with me, you know, and, and they understand that the government taxes their cocoa at the national level. Like they, they understand that the government sets a producer price that is minus out a tax, you know, and they will say to me, where did that money go? they say we know it's supposed to come back to us in the form of development you know building roads making sure there's clean water making sure there's sanitation and they don't necessarily see that cocoa tax money being put to a purpose that serves them developmentally some do some don't how about programs from big companies um when you do research on big companies, you like not necessarily good ones. They talk about big projects they want to implement in West Africa to make a better living for the farmers. Um, what's their reaction to these programs, and are they involved in what kind of program there is going to be is going to be implemented? Definitely. I mean, the 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 big chocolate companies you know, especially nowadays, I don't know so much what they were doing 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, nowadays, the big companies do a lot of, you know, support for cocoa farming communities. And okay, they're not going to be building roads, they're not going to take on infrastructure projects that should really properly be the, the, you know, the responsibility of a government. But the kind of programs that large chocolate companies sponsor, tend to be really targeted to what cocoa farmers need, you know? Um, and again, I, it's, it's really not a black and white issue here. I, you know, I think 
what do most farmers want to grow more cocoa you know like that's because more cocoa means more money big chocolate companies also want farmers to grow more cocoa right that's in their best interest because the more cocoa you have the cheaper it is and the more security the big companies have for their main input so everyone's aligned there you know like farmers want more cocoa big companies want more cocoa that's a really strong alignment between the two so the the programs that companies tend to support are ones that um help that you know and it could be you know, sponsoring seedlings, you know, high, high um, yielding seedlings that are given to cocoa farmers. It could be providing agricultural inputs, including, you know, pesticides or fungicides or, or fertilizers. Um, it could be providing the tools that farmers need, like every farmer needs a cutlass, um, you know, or multiple cutlasses that like in some places it'd be called a machete here it's called a cutlass that's that's the basic tool of farming like you cannot do farming without it um boots you know like all stuff that you need to kind of work on a farm so i have often seen companies supporting those very things um that's not usually what people necessarily want to hear when they're talking about like social justice or environmental justice you know um uh trade justice those tend to be the kind of the desires there i think are more like equity related you know like how can far like gender equity for example you know um i think there's there's a, a desire sort of on the consumer end of things for there to be gender programs for there to be child labor programs you know the, the kind of um social justice stuff which obviously is important and, and just as important if not more so you know than anything else um it's not necessarily the case that farmers would collectively advocate for those things because that doesn't necessarily help them grow more cocoa you know so it's not um there's a lot of variety in what companies will sponsor. And I would say we, we need to be aware that some of those things do fall into a, a social justice category and some fall into like a, let's help farmers grow more cocoa category. And depending on what position you are in, in the value chain, you might say one is more important than another or not more important, more, urgent right more urgent than another so it's a mix it's a real mix me personally i tend to sort of support any program you know like i i don't i don't like to say one program is better than another because there's need for all of them right like there's i will never say that like yields aren't important because every farmer i've ever met wants to grow more cocoa regardless of anything I will also never say that gender justice is not important. You know, they're, to me, they're, they're all important. And so if a company is doing one, I'm not going to say you're doing a bad thing by not doing the other. You, you, kind of any help is, is, is not, not any help, like indiscriminate, you know, like let's pour a bunch of fertilizer and pesticides onto cocoa. You know, that obviously isn't great, but like, 
I would say most help is actually helpful from someone's point of view. And uh, how do direct trade relationships work as far as like cocoa or chocolate makers and cocoa farmers um, working together to like, I guess, support each other's success? Um, mm -hmm. Does that have to go through like, because I know often, you know, when there is that relationship, the chocolate or the cocoa buyers will pay a premium for the beans that they're getting. Mm -hmm. um, and does that go through any like system before or is that really like an equal? No, 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 there's always a system, right? And I right. think direct trade, again, in concept, I, I support it. I think the philosophy behind it is, is really important. And we, you know, it, 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 it pushes us to think differently about trade. But again, the reality of the system is that most of what is called direct trade doesn't really look direct if you follow the cocoa through. Because again, there's no like way to get cocoa from a farm to a buyer or to a consumer directly. You know, it's, 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 there are limited options, extremely limited options for trading without a lot of people in the middle, right? And so in Ghana, that's Ghana Cocoa Board, which controls all the export, you know, that's Cocoa Marketing Company who actually sell, you know, do, do the, 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 the actual contracts and agree the pricing um, for the cocoa. There's um, the agricultural extension people who are helping the farmers do the work well. There's the licensed buying companies. I mean, there's everyone providing like domestic labor, you know, like around the cocoa industry. And that's not just like in the home, that's like everyone along the supply chain needs to eat. And if they're not in their own home, then they have to rely on other people for that. So like direct trade is not super direct in my experience um, for the most part. So yes, direct trade contracts come with a premium attached. I don't know of any direct trade contracts that don't have a premium attached to them. Um, but that premium doesn't mean the price of the cocoa changes. Like the premium has to fund many things. Uh, one of the things a premium often funds is a bonus to farmers. Like they will get a bonus at a certain point in the year based on the cocoa that they've sold for export. Um, but the premium has to fund a lot of other stuff too, you know? So even what people would think of is like, I'm paying extra for this chocolate bar because I want to support farmers. Yes, you are supporting farmers, but that money has to pay for lots of other stuff too. That's totally legitimate. You know, it's like, you cannot pay a bonus to farmers without someone administrating that system. And that person needs a computer and they need Excel workbooks and they need training on how to use them and they need internet and they need pen and paper and they need a physical place for farmers to come and distribute that money. Like it's huge amounts of admin. <laughs> and right. Like something has to pay for that, right? Because it's not, it doesn't just spring into existence. And so Yes, direct trade is 
pushing us to think in better ways around our relationship with Coco or anything. But it's not a magical thing, you know? It's, it's not like um, instantaneously all the farmers are suddenly doing much better than they were before. Right. You know, they're getting some benefit. Maybe sometimes they're getting a lot of benefit. But in my experience, there's not like um, a sudden jump to a new socioeconomic level. Right. Right. Hmm. Are there any Kenyan chocolatiers? Oh, many. Yeah, many. Yeah. And especially in the last, like, so let's say five years or so, lots of, of, of um, artisan chocolate companies have come into existence. And um, it's, it's a thriving industry here in Ghana, very dynamic. Pretty much every day, I feel like I hear about somebody new, you know, who's, who's making something from cocoa here in Ghana. So it's great. It's really exciting. And my NGO, the, the NGO that I co-founded with Mutia Merhab, the Cocoa Partnership Institute of Ghana, we work a lot with the artisan uh, chocolate makers and confectioners and, and uh, cocoa processors here in Ghana. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. That is really cool because you're keeping more value, I guess, in the chain in the country, right? When you make in some chocolate. cases all of it right because right. most of the local chocolate companies or, or cocoa processing companies or whatever have sell locally right and so there's a few who export but most most of the time i would say all of the value stays in ghana okay nice yeah that's it's great <laughs> it's really nice very very small scale still compared to the amount that's exported right but right. still it's happening and it's 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 very exciting and very very good products really world-class stuff hmm. i'll have to try some sometime yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think one of my favorite bars of chocolate right now is from ghana oh um, excellent yeah i Which don't know uh, mocha origins is the company uh -huh. that makes them and they have a yeah. bar from ghana and it's it's the it's a 72 percent dark really good fudgy notes really mm, so good <laughs> Very often that the Ghana chocolate, the Ghana cocoa presents those, those fudgy flavors, mm -hmm. really like deep, deep chocolate flavors. Yeah. yeah I love it. <laughs> That's so nice. Oh, good, 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 good. I'm glad you're enjoying some Ghana cocoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I wanted to uh, maybe ask if like from a consumer standpoint, mm -hmm. I know you said earlier, you know, the best thing you can do is really try to understand the other side of the supply chain um but what are the actions like ways we can act or consume consciously um this delicious food in a way that you know helps everyone or you know promotes sustainability in the industry that's such a great question and thank you for asking that my my first like reaction to that question is um not to boycott anyone, um, not to make the assumption that cocoa coming from a certain place or from a certain company is automatically bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like in my experience, there's, there's no evidence to support that, right? And, I, and we do hear calls in the industry to boycott multinational companies, to boycott West Africa, to boycott Ivory Coast, whatever. In my experience, that does more harm than it could ever possibly do good. Why? Because 
these we're talking about human beings we're not talking about evil right like there is no evil in this industry you know there's people working really hard under really difficult circumstances sometimes they make good decisions sometimes they make difficult decisions but everyone's a person and so for me i would never cut anyone out because they live in a certain country or they look a certain way or they work for a certain company, right? Like, no. And now let me just emphasize that I, I know about Coco. I don't know about other industries, right? And there may be other industries where a boycott would be the best option, you know? But the, the supply chain would have to look very different, I think, for a boycott to truly be effective Cocoa is an agricultural good. It is a smallholder crop, which means that like worldwide, there are millions and millions of cocoa farmers. To me, boycott doesn't make sense because whenever you're dealing with like millions of farmers or even in one country's case, thousands or, or hundreds, that's too much variability for us to say blanket, they're all bad, you know? So my first reaction is like, I, I, I've almost stopped saying like, learn as much as you can, because I feel like there's so much information out there that just doesn't fit my experience. Like it just doesn't fit what I see in the field that I almost want to say, choose your information very wisely, you know, and ask questions about the motivations behind that information, right? If your only information is a front page newspaper story in the Washington Post, someone has tried to sell you a newspaper, right? Like that is their goal is to sell you, okay, not so much a physical newspaper anymore, but certainly the advertising that supports the newspaper. They're trying to sell you something, right? So what's the motivation behind printing that story? It's not because they want to tell you the whole truth about, something it's because they want to sell you something same with any chocolate bar right like why does anybody tell you something when they want you know like if they're at a chocolate company because they want you to buy their thing and so every like source information as smartly as you can and at the same time i would say don't start with any assumptions like don't presuppose that any one company is doing something wrong or that any one group of people is doing something wrong. Um, let's start with the premise that we're all human beings trying to make a living and keep ourselves fed and housed and safe and doing the same for our loved ones and then see what we can learn from there. That was beautiful. That was a really awesome conversation covered a lot and wow. um i learned a lot so thank you <laughs> it was you. fantastic really really i mean your questions were so fantastic and it just gave me an opportunity to speak to some of the things i've seen and observed um and that i i'm very appreciative of of the way you've you've uh framed this and and given me a chance to to share some of the things i've seen that's great well that's what this podcast is about so <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Fantastic. Is there anything you think um, 
we didn't cover that you want to mention? We did cover. We did cover so much. I mean, I, I I will say something I said, you know, in in just a slightly different way, you know, which is that chocolate. Why do we all care about chocolate? You know, it's because we 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 enjoy it because we love it because it's a it gives us pleasure. You know, nowadays, okay, maybe people eat it for health reasons or something, but I think deep inside most people are, are approaching chocolate as, a, as a, a pleasurable thing, right? Even if it has some health benefits as well, we like it, you know? So let's not lose sight of that. Um, certainly farmers that I know would never turn down a piece of chocolate, right? Like I, almost every time I sit down with a farmer or a farmer family or, or anyone in a farming business or cocoa business rather, Usually I'll share chocolate, right? It's, it's a, a sort of normal thing that I do and everybody loves it, you know? And like people are so happy to be sharing this thing and to see people's faces light up, you know, especially the kids, you know, if, if, if I'm with a family and the kids are around and I, and I get to share some chocolate with the kids, they love it, you know? And so let's keep that in our hearts too, that like and chocolate is joyful. It's, it's, a pleasure and it's a pleasure for the people who grow it as well you know they the farmers aren't like <laughs> you know like it's not like they're like oh i hate this thing that my cocoa is becoming you know they're happy that they get to enjoy cocoa as chocolate right and and so let's let's also remember that and allow ourselves to appreciate it because I can tell you from a great deal of experience that farmers appreciate it too. For sure. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so, so much. It was really inspiring for me. Loved it. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad. And I'm so grateful to, to both of you, you know, for, for tackling this. I know it's a lot of work. I know that like, just like Coco doesn't like magically move from a farm to a factory, like podcasts do not magically come into existence. And, and you know, what, what listeners or viewers are, are hearing or seeing right now is, is like the tip of the iceberg and both before and after you have so much work that goes into this. So I thank you for taking on that work and, and doing it, you know, for the, the reason of, of, of sharing more information and, and giving people access. Our pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. This was the first episode of the Coco Podcast. We hope you enjoyed.